Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Let me read that together. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back against the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you. Let us pray. Father God, I just thank you for this day. God, I just thank you again for your word. God, I pray you open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us this morning. God, let us lay down our pride. Let us lay down, Lord, anything that may hinder us from hearing what you revealed or what you have to reveal to us this morning. God, we're broken sinners in desperate need of saving. So Father God, I pray that we would see the liberty that we find only in you. Lord, we love you. We thank you and pray you. Jesus, Holy. So church, this morning we continue in our study of the book of Galatians that we titled Grace to You. And this idea is that this whole uh, letter written to these churches in the region of Galatia is written to these people because uh, others have come in teaching a different gospel that is not a gospel of grace. And so Paul, with all his heart, is pouring into these people. And he's writing this to believers in defense of true Christianity and the fight for our freedom in Christ. And I believe what we see even more this morning is we see a tragedy. We see a tragedy that these people were experiencing and facing, but it's also something that is close to us today. It is a tragedy that we face today. And what we'll see, moving on from verse 4 through the rest of this book, uh, as we will take a little break for about three weeks for Advent, as we celebrate Advent, and pick things back up in the first year in the book of Galatians, but... What we'll see moving forward is we'll see Paul kind of step from uh, kind of a wide view or kind of a view from the sky, as we say, where you see the big picture and you start to really bring it down to earth, bring it down to where it affects us personally, where we walk practically in our day-to-day -day life, kind of this more uh, ground view of our lives and how it relates to the law and to God's grace in our lives. And so the biggest tragedy that I believe that Christians, that he's, why he's writing to these Christians, and we've more or less established this a little bit uh, in previous chapters, but we'll see even more specifically as we kind of lean into this text even this morning, is we'll see the biggest tragedy facing Christians then, and I believe with all my heart facing Christians now, uh, is this idea that Christians are missing out on living in the liberty that they have been given. You know, a lot of times I try to think of something really clever, the subtitle of the message this morning, but I, I couldn't think of anything. So this morning it's simply this, stop missing out. Stop missing out. 
And what are we missing out on? And what is Paul preaching directly to these people this morning? It's their Christian liberty. It's the hope and faith that they have in Jesus and in his grace specifically. You know, Paul spends the rest of this book really telling us what it means to step into his work through our lives and how we live for his glory and his kingdom. And I believe this morning we'll see two things. Two things that we'll see from Paul touch on. Two aspects of our Christian lives that are, are absolutely vital in not missing out on the Christian liberty that he has for us. The first thing this morning is that we would see the posh, positional, I'm sorry, positional embrace. That we would see the positional embrace that he has called us to. Uh, Galatians chapter 4 verse 1. It says, and I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So when we talk about an heir, what are we talking about? We're talking about someone, a person legally entitled to the property or rank of another after that person's death. You know, and so he's using some language here in the beginning of this, in this chapter. He calls them children. He says, remember when you were children or when you, well, as long as he is a, a child, talking about the heir. You know, in last week, we kind of touched on this a little bit, where it talked about uh, being heirs um, to, to what God has promised us, to what God has given us. So we know that he's speaking to, to us, he's speaking to Christians, he's speaking to believers. And so he says here, he said the, that the heir, uh, when he was a child. Now, the thing that we have to be able to kind of recognize, and as we read from the text, what is there, and maybe try to understand a little bit of history, is for, uh, for them, and not so much different for us, but for children, uh, then they would receive their inheritance when they came of age. Okay? And so he's speaking of it in this idea that there's a child that has a promised inheritance, but he has no right to that inheritance because he's a child, because he's immature. Because he is too young, because he hasn't come of age, you know, and until they have come to this place where they, uh, where they're able to make decisions, that they have, uh, that because children, in this sense, in this culture, they did not have rights, they did not have uh, any any say so in anything. They were basically, and he says here uh, that they were basically no different from a slave, though they own everything. You know, and, and as I, you know, just began to really think about that. You know, I believe this is a place for us as Christians that too often we live in positionally. That our position, though we have an inheritance promised to us, we still live in this Christian life as children. And so because we're living as children, because we are still in this childlike state, that we do not have full access, we are not embracing the full access of our positional, because remember, we talk about, we'll reference this a little bit more as we go down, but we, we reference that our position in Christ as a believer is saved, is righteous, is holy before God, where we have before us laid out all the inheritance of heaven and earth laid before us as Christians. That we can experience now. Remember we talked about a little bit a few weeks back. There's an already that's happened. That we are justified. That we are made right. That we are, that we are being sanctified in Jesus. And that before a holy God we are now innocent because of what Jesus has done for us. So that is a, a now thing. That is a, a position that we currently stay in. Now there is a not yet that has happened. When we stand before our heavenly father. We have glorified bodies. And we get to enjoy the presence of our God forever. But there is a position that we must embrace to truly stop missing out on the Christian freedom that God has for us. 
You know, and he continues on in verse 3, and he says that, that within this, that they're enslaved to elementary principles. And so when he says that, elementary principles, he's talking about basics, foundational, like uh, even in, in something I was reading, talking about even the, like the letters of the alphabet. You know, and so remember what we're talking about this in reference to. We're talking about this in reference to objections to the gospel by the law rather than the gospel by grace. And so what he's telling them is that for us, anyone, Christian, non-Christian, to attempt to live our lives by the gospel of the law, that it is grace plus this, or faith plus this, that we are putting ourselves under this childlike uh, immaturity where we are not embracing the positional inheritance that is given to us. And so then we begin to miss out. And so then we begin to grasp for empty things. You know, for us, the way we can relate this is that living a religious life, the best we can accomplish is the elementary. Living, just strictly living by the law, living by the do's and don'ts, living by uh, accomplishing all I can accomplish to get to a holy God. If I can be good enough, if I can work hard enough, then eventually God will accept me. The only thing we will ever find is elementary things. He tells us, you're enslaved to those things. And when we are reaching out on our own, Christian or non-Christian, we are trying to live on our own strength, live on our own power, live on our own faith. Then we are living as people who are not yet of age. And so within that, we are not embracing the inheritance that God has promised to us. You know, and, and, and the, but the beautiful thing is that just like in normal development, as we grow, as we mature, it's not necessarily something that we contribute to, Right? You know, I can remember the moment that I grew facial hair in, like, fifth grade. I did nothing to make that happen. It just kind of happened. You know, I got taller. I didn't really do anything to make that happen. My voice got deeper. I didn't do anything to make those things happen. Those things developed within me. Something else was contributing to those things. And it's the same thing in our Christian life that we can be so thankful that the maturing of our Christian faith and the maturing of our place coming of age to be able to embrace and live in the promises and the inheritance that God has promised His people is not by something that we do, but it's by something God has provided for us. That even as Christians, too often we choose to, to, we choose to live and settle for the samples rather than fully embracing the fullness of what we, it means to be in Christ. And we see what God has done for us to bring us into that maturity, to bring us to that, that of age, to, to embrace the inheritance that he has for us in Galatians 4, 4. He says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's a beautiful picture of the gospel that, that he is presenting to us right there. That he's showing us that to gain positional inheritance, to, to embrace our positional inheritance, God has already provided that way. He says he's done it by sending forth his son, that he's given us something. And not only that, but this son has been born of a woman, which is really contributing to the continuity of the entire biblical narrative because it's fulfilling prophecy from, from hundreds of years before these, these very moments. And so what he's showing is that the truths that you know are, are fulfilled in Jesus. That the truths you want to hold on to are brought to fullness in Jesus. That everything you're striving for and you're trying to do on your own has already been done in Jesus. And so this is where your faith is. This is where grace lies is in Jesus. You know, and it says that, that he was, it doesn't say here that he was uh, born of man and woman, 
Because what it's referencing is the virgin birth that he was born of woman. But not only that, to kind of bring continuity to the biblical narrative, but he's also saying that he is a true man because he came from a woman. He was born the way we were born. And not only was he born the way we were born, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, God among us, Emmanuel, put on flesh. You know, that, that's just a beautiful truth that I think too often for me, and then I, even as we get into Advent, I pray that we'll kind of amplify this truth more. But this idea that God came, that the eternal Son of God added humanity to his deity and became man. That the God of the universe put on flesh for you. I mean, how, how, how amazing is that? And how often do we forget that? That not only was he born of a woman in the virgin birth, but he was born as we were born, into flesh, into a mass, into struggle. But not only that, he also says that he was born under the law. Satisfying the requirements of the law required someone from under the law to first off, keep the law perfectly, and secondly, die from the penalty of sin. And so because Jesus was able to keep the law perfectly, because he was God, he was also able to bear the penalty of our sin. In Romans 8.3, it says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Weakened by the flesh. So Jesus came strictly as a 100% man. The flesh could not have accomplished it. It says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That Jesus came to do this work for us. And then continuing on in verse 5, he says, this is what he came to do. This is what he came to do. These are some truths that we have to hold on to. These are some truths we have to recognize and continually preach to ourselves and preach to the people around us. That this is what Jesus came to do. He came to redeem. And he has called us to receive adoption as sons. And so what is the word redeeming? We talked about this a little bit before, but the word redeem means to release or to buy out. You know, it's even more so kind of tease out this picture. You know, it was very common in the Roman Greek world for a wealthy, childless man to take one of his servants and adopt him. And the thing is, is that the moment of adoption, that slave became free, and he received all the financial and legal privileges within the estates, that he was no longer a slave. And not only was he no longer a slave, but he received all of the rights of his father. You know, for us, we would not be surprised about someone saving somebody, right? Like if you saved somebody in the street uh, that was walking down the middle of the street, you jumped out and grabbed them and you saved them, we'd be like, man, that was great. That's, that's what we should do, right? But it would blow our mind for that same person that, that was saved, for that person to say, hey, I'd like to adopt you into my family, right? That would blow our minds. And not only that, not only that, that, that we would adopt that person, but that person would be a son of our mortal enemy. Because the Bible tells us that we were, by birth, by our nature, we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are born into sin. Our father is the enemy. Our father, by birth, is the enemy. And so not only has God saved us, not only has God given us an inheritance that was not our own, but has given us full rights and access to what his kingdom holds, but that we were the son of his enemy. And he still embraced us. He still gave to us and provided for us a way. And then it tells us 
You know, it tells us communion on that we have received adoption as sons. Remember when it uses the masculine term there, it's speaking of mankind, of all humanity, men and women. And so it says that he gives us the right to be sons, that there's a sonship. Now, we don't understand that or really practice that necessarily a whole lot in our day and age, but for them, this is huge. Sonship came with so much power. Sonship came with so much privilege. Sonship came with so much responsibility and opportunity. But the most beautiful thing, what we see in verse 6, is what really comes with embracing our position in God's family. He says in verse 6, he says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. That our positional privilege in Jesus is not a hesitant whisper, but a confident exclamation. That when we are in the family of God, that we are not no longer afraid of God. That we are, when we are embracing our position in the family of God, that we no longer have to whimper when we speak out to our holy God. But that we can cry out to our God, Abba, Father. The word Abba is a beautiful word. It is an Arabic word for Father. And it is only used in the intimacy of the family circle. It is only used in the intimacy of a family circle. Romans 8, 15. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba, Father, a lot of people don't like saying it like this, but it is the equivalent of us calling out Dad. The intimacy of that word is so is so heavy that many would not even say it in regards to Father because they did to God the Father because they did not believe that mankind could have that type of a relationship with the Holy God to call him Abba. That is the relationship that a holy God has invited us into. A position that he has called us to embrace. John Calvin said this. He said, I consider that this is used, in talking about this phrase, I consider that this is used to express great boldness. Uncertainty does not let us speak calmly, but keeps our mouth half shut, so that the half-broken words can hardly escape from a stammering tongue. Crying, on the contrary, crying out on the contrary, is a sign of certainty and unwavering confidence. But that is the relationship God has invited us into. One that we exclaim towards our God and Father in heaven with confidence. That we do not fear. That we come before His throne boldly. And we bring our needs. We bring our desires. We bring our hurts. We bring our pains. We bring our disappointments. Even when it's disappointments with God's people. We come before a holy God and we cry out to Him. And not only does crying out speak to this idea that brings confidence, that's not a whimper, that is a cry, that is a, a, an exclamation. Not only does it bring that, but it also speaks to its real presence, right? That if we have the ability to cry out, Abba Father, if we have the ability to cry out, Daddy, if we have the ability to cry out in this intimate family relationship to our holy God, that does not only tell us that I have the confidence to do so, but it tells us that my God is present with me. That in the middle of my hurt and uncertainty, that I can cry out to a God that is here. I can cry out to a God that is in my darkest places. 
I can cry out to my God when I, I feel the most alone. I can cry out to a God when I that that God that is there, that is present with me, that is present with you. No matter where you are, what roads you've taken, what paths you've gone, the Bible tells us if you'll acknowledge the Lord, He will make your path straight. So no matter the broken past that we've wound out for ourselves, a holy God will step into that space when we cry out, Abba, Father, He hears us because He is present. We have a present God. Not a distant God. Not a God that does not care. Not a God that wound the clock and let us go. Not a God that is not involved in our, what we would feel like, medial activities. We have a God that knows the number of the hairs on our head, that has numbered the stars in the heavens. We serve a God that is involved. You know, I mean, we can see, I, I love that, that human relationships can allow us, if we'll really see it for what it is, can allow us to see beautiful illustrations of this. Because think of it if you have kids, your kids this morning. They cry out for you when they're hurt. They cry out for you when they have questions. They cry out, cry out to you when they're afraid. And they cry out because they believe you're present. And I don't know about you, but for me as a father, especially when I'm in unknown places with them, I'm always in earshot. You're always in earshot. Because you want to hear their question. You want to hear their cry. You want to hear their concern. You want to hear their need. You want to be there to protect them. You want to be there to provide for them. You want to be there to pick them up when they fall. That is the God we serve. That when we cry out, Abba, Father, He's not absent. He is present. And then continuing on in verse 7, I said, So you are no longer slaves, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. I love how the language has changed here. Because remember, the language at the beginning was child. The language at the beginning was child. So what does it say now? It's using the word son. A lot of versions of the Bible don't use two different words right there. They both use child. I love for me with the ESV. It uses two different words to show us the, the, the progression. To show us the change. That it's not a child who was there. Because remember, when the child was there, he had access to everything. But he could, did not have the right to it. But now, if you have embraced your position in Jesus, you are now a son. And because you are a son, you are an heir. And this is a different position. This is a position where we have right to the inheritance God has given us right now. We have right to embrace the confidence of our relationship with God. We have right to live in the life that He's given us to live in the Christian liberty and that we have no reason to be missing out on living in that freedom that we have in Jesus. And what does that freedom allow us to do? What does that freedom allow us to do? First off, it allows us to recognize that in Christ we are brought to the age of right to our inheritance. And that in God, in Jesus, He doesn't only transfer our sins to Himself, but He transfers to us the Son's rights and privileges. That we gain sonship through Jesus. That as an heir, we are being treated as an only son. Each and every one of us in the intimacy of our relationship with Jesus. Confidence and boldness because our Father owns the place. I mean, just imagine if, you're, if your father owned the, the, your favorite restaurant, right? Cracker Barrel. Your father owned Cracker Barrel. You walk around that place like this is mine. I'm going to eat more pancakes and bacon than my body can hold because my father owns the place. Can you imagine? I play all the checkers and little like golf pin game things that I can do. Because my father owns the place. Can you imagine the confidence of walking into the space that your father owns? 
take advantage of it, but to live in it, to relish it. Our position is one of power and privilege if we'll embrace it. And then the last thing this morning is that when we embrace, truly embrace that position that we have in Christ, that it should lead and can lead to practical experience if we would walk in. Practical experience if we would walk in. In Galatians 4 verse 8, it says, Formerly, you were enslaved to those that are not gods. So this word gods that he uses here is a word, the same word used to describe our God. And so Paul isn't talking about some other type of deity. He's talking about the one and only type of deity. And he says that the gods that you formerly served are not gods. I love how just clear and precise he is. Those things that you elevated to God status in your life, and they can be a lot of different things. They can be ourselves. They can be our jobs. They can be our spouses. They can be our things. There's a lot of things that we've elevated to God status in our life. But Paul is very clear, and I love that, that in the Greek here, he uses the exact same word for our God, but just in my Bible, it's a lowercase g. He says, they are not God, because when we're talking about a God, we're talking about a being who is transcendent, who is worthy of reverence or respect. This is the concept of a creator, a sustainer, and a ruler. Paul just simply says that these things you used to depend on, as gods are not gods. They are not creators. They are not sustainers. They are not providers. They are not saviors for us as much as we want them to be. As much as we want these things in our life that we hold so dear to be the very thing that's going to save us, to make us feel comfortable, to give us peace, to give us purpose, to give us power. They never will. He says, those things are not gods. Isaiah 37, 19. He says, and, and, and have, uh, they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. Jeremiah 16, 20 says, can, may, can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Church, these things that we are chasing after are empty, weak, and worthless. And he even says that. Moving further down in verse 9, he says, Turning back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Whose slaves you want to be once more? You know, why would we want anything else when the creator and sustainer and ruler knows you? And that's where he begins in the rest of this verse, in this, this next verse, verse 9. It's such a beautiful statement, and I pray that we would understand it. In Galatians 4 9, he says, But now you have come to know God, or rather, known by God. This is not just some intellectual understanding. This is a divine connection and an eternal establishment. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8 3 says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Hosea 13 5, it says, It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. Nahum 1 7, he says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The God that we serve, the God that we love, knows us. And this is a word that is more than just an understanding of our existence. This is the same word that communicates an intimacy of a relationship between people, that they know each other, they understand each other, they know their needs, they know their hurts, they know their desires, they know their, their goals. Our God knows us. And we know that He knows us more than just an intellectual knowledge of who we are because of these three things right here that I pray that we would remember. 
First off, that he chose us first. He chose us first. If you are in Christ today, it's because God chose you first. John 50, 50, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Not only did he choose us first, but he loved us first. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. And not only that, but he pursues us. You know, that's the beautiful thing about our holy God, is that we weren't some lonely beggar who just happened to find upon a God and be like, oh, great, there you are. No, he found us. Just like he found Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul was not looking for God. God came and found Paul. What a beautiful picture of what God does for his people. Church, he pursues us. And what Paul continuously preaches in this verse, and in these, these chapters, and what we'll continue to see, is that the greatest enemy of our gospel progress is depending on ourselves, depending on our work, depending on religious do's and don'ts, depending on religious ordinances to get us close to God, because what that is, is that is us turning back when we begin to rest in our own strength and ability to get close to a holy God. That is us turning back to a childlike state, relinquishing the, the inheritance that God has promised us and, and continuing to live in this place where we're not, first off, we're not living in our position, and then we're also not practically experiencing the promises that He has for us. And then he says, he says here in verse 10, and we'll be finished shortly. He says, you observe days, you observe months and seasons and years. So what is he talking about there? He's talking about the, the religious calendar. He's saying that you, you ironed out these seasons. You've put out these days. You've made certain days holy and certain days not holy. You've made certain situations uh, more righteous than others. And so we know what this is. And he says, this is us turning back into slavery. Because for us, when we make certain things holy and certain things not holy, and what he's talking about is us separating our relationship with God, separating uh, our religious experience, separating everything that we have, uh, and, and having separate things from ourselves, separate days that are holy, separate situations that are holy. What that does is it begins to remove the, the practical experience of our inheritance in God away from our families. It removes it from our day-to-day. -day. It removes it from, from our experience and interactions with other people. And so then we begin to separate what is holy from within ourselves when God tells us in Christ we are holy, we are righteous, we carry the Spirit of God in us, and we are called to be the light to our world. But what ends up happening is that we confine our positional experience to religious ordinances. You know, we've, we've stepped away from sonship promises and we began living in childish practice. You know, too often, guys, you know, and I was having a conversation with someone the other day and they were saying, you know, there's just so many churches in this town and, you know, I wish that we could all come together as one and do this and that. Man, as much as I would love to see at least the like-minded uh, churches come together, the reality is too often we get so distracted with religious expectations that we stop living in the practical experience of our position and we stop teaching people that. We're afraid to talk about the grace of God because we're afraid people are going to take advantage of it. So we'd rather preach legalism. We'd rather preach rules. We'd rather back, front load or back load the gospel or tell people, unless you do these things, you are not saved. Unless you do these things, God has not accepted you. Unless you do these things, God does not have a place for 
we used to have, and we're not embracing our position or practically experiencing the work that God has done for us. And it's because we've become distracted. We become distracted with lesser things. I mean, Paul says in Romans 14, 5 through 6, he says, One person esteems one day is better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Listen, it is so much less about the religious things we do and so much more about who we're doing whatever we do for that the things that we would do would be for the glory of God. That the things we would, that we would do would be to experience Him and embrace Him and enjoy Him. It is so much not about, I mean, just in all honesty, it's not about what day of the week we meet. It's not about the order of the songs we do. It's not about the, any of those things. So if we could do all those things, and He said it's like whitewashed tombs with dead man's bones. Some of these people in this book were doing some of those things better than me and you will ever dream of. But those people were the people that Jesus was the hardest on because they believed that by their good religiousness that they were getting closer to God than the people who didn't know who God was. Listen, it is more dangerous, it is more dangerous to be a so-called religious person trying to earn their way to God than to be an, uh, an unbeliever. Because, listen, because the religious person is deceived. The religious person believes that they can be good enough to get to God. While the unbeliever will come to a point where they, they've never known Him. And so to experience the grace of God will be the greatest thing they've ever known. And so they'll know there's no way I can earn God's favor because look at where He came and found me. Look at where He loved me first. Look at where He chose me. Paul was on his way, and that's why Paul is such the person for this. Paul was on his way to murder Christians in a prison, and God came to him. So why does this matter for us as I finish up? Because I could talk all day. Church, too many of, of us have forgotten our position and are missing out on our practical experience of what it means to be a son and daughter of God. To live in the sonship of our inheritance. Church, we have a sonship to step into. And that our inheritance in Christ is not a prize to be won, but a gift to be enjoyed. And we gain all this through Jesus. Putting our faith in his work on the cross for our, our behalf. Believing in him. Believing what he's done is enough. <coughs> Too often, church, we live as if we have been given a gift. But give it back to the giver so that we can strive to earn it, not using it to live, but living to earn it. In Jesus, we have a gift, an inheritance, a sonship, a right, a privilege, a power, a confidence that comes with knowing God and being known by God. That that God is our Father. And it's not because, and for Paul, it's not because he had it all together. It's not because he, he, Fulfilled all the rules, did all the things right, because he did those things long before he met Jesus. So I'd like to leave you with a couple things as we finish. What are some things that we can do, and these seem very simple, very obvious, but I believe it's things that we neglect every single day. What are two things that we can do to have a deeper experience of our sonship? Truly, 
embrace our position and practically experience and live in our inheritance. Two things that we can do. The first thing, church, is that we would put aside time to study the work of Jesus, the Son, the inheritance that we are taking part in. That we must learn to meditate, meditate and study, connect our prayer to our study and our study to our prayer. And then the second thing, and I think this is the thing that we get wrong too often, is that we must cry out to our Father. You know, we need to stop making this time of communication with God when we can fit it into our schedule. Because we never will. We're running from one thing to the other. We're distracted with this or that. It's not about setting aside time. But it's a constant connection. Not trying to squeeze God into a time slot in our day, but just acknowledging Him where He is anyway, right in the middle of every moment. That we would just cry out to God in every moment, in every experience, not trying to, to, to over over dramatize it into this experience where you have to be kneeled down in our closet to pray. Man, in, in the middle of your job, in the middle of your stress, in the middle of, of, of navigating parenting, in the middle of navigating struggles and issues in your life, just crying out. You know, in the middle of celebration, in the middle of happiness, in the middle of joy, in the middle of dinner, in the middle of driving and commuting, whatever you're doing, just, just constantly having the Lord on our mind. But these two things go together. Unless we're meditating on the revealed word of God that he's given us to remind us about his grace, remind us about our inheritance, remind us about our position, we won't know what things that we're, we're thankful for. We won't know what we what inheritance we have to tap into. And so I pray that we would connect those things. That yes, we would set aside time for study. But not only that, but that through our entire day, that we would have this connection with God, that we'd be mindful of God in the moments that He's already at. God's already in those moments. So let's just begin acknowledging Him there, even in our failures, and even in our needs. And I pray that through all these, this, that we would understand that all of these things, sonship, true sonship, comes from Jesus. Faith in Christ alone and His grace. Not through our accomplishment of religious regulations or ordinances, but through faith in Jesus and believing in Him, trusting in Him and His work on the cross for us, and believing that that was enough, and allowing that to motivate us. Because if we understand our position, it will motivate our practice. If we understand our position, it will motivate our practice, and then we will begin to live. A fool says that grace is an excuse to sin. Grace is an excuse to live, like we've constantly said in this day. Grace is an excuse to live. So let's live and stop missing out. Church, let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. Father God, I thank you that in our brokenness and our sin, Father, you meet us right where we are. Father, I'm so thankful that this morning that you brought us together. God, under one truth, God, simply to enjoy you and worship you. God, I pray that we would not lose sight of your grace. Father God, I, I'm, I'm afraid that grace is that thing that in churches we tend to lose focus on the quickest because it's the least measurable. Because sometimes it requires us to lay ourselves down for each other, to elevate someone else above ourselves, to swallow our pride and to walk in humility. 
pray that the very mode of transportation that we move through this life in is your grace. God, if we ever find ourselves going back to shame, God, if we find ourselves ever going back to guilt, we find ourselves ever going back to lesser things that are not God's, Lord, that you would redirect us, God, that we would constantly be seeking after you, God, that we would know that faith in you is the power that we need, the privilege that we need to step out from under our slave enslaved position, begin to live in the confidence of our sonship. And we know that you have allotted us the rights to our heavenly inheritance while we're on earth. God, so let us walk in that power. Let us walk in that confidence. Lord, let us lead our families, our friends, our co-workers into that path. Father God, I just thank you again for your goodness. Father God, I pray that you would just bless us, be with us. Lord, challenge us and convict us in the way we need to be. Father, we just love you, thank you, and praise you. In Jesus, Lord.